You've seen the best. You've seen the worst. Now here's the rest of both worlds. I'm Gayfesh, and the first time I saw Spock, I asked Mom why he was so angry. And I'm Ari, and I like all jazz except for Dixieland. And today we will be discussing the Star Trek The Next Generation episodes Angel 1 and 11001001. (laughs) Uh, That's a mouthful. It Uh, is. (laughs) Before we get into the episodes, I wanted to shout out a uh, fellow Star Trek creator, Jesse Gender. Uh, she is a, uh, a YouTuber who, even when she's not talking about Star Trek, she's talking about Star Trek, and she recently put out this amazing three-hour video called Sex and Star Trek hmm. that she was inspired to do because a bunch of people were freaking out over the Lower Decks Naked Now episode. Where oh, everyone really? was naked. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and she, uh, there was like this common refrain where it was like, oh, this is just besmirching Gene's vision, and um, she's just like, no, Gene was a massive horn dog. What are you talking about? Gene <laughs> wanted more sex in Star Trek. It was like the other people who were like holding him back. So she did like a whole like three hour video all about uh, Gene's relationship with sex. And um, it's a really good video. But unfortunately, YouTube recently uh, put it age restricted, which basically kills its growth in, in the algorithm. It's not oh, going to get annoying. recommended to people. You have to be logged in to watch it. Um, and so I'm going to make sure that there's a link to that video in uh, the uh, the description for the podcast and on the YouTube version of the podcast as well. Because I want to make sure people go and, and uh, take a look at it and, and uh, give that video some love because she put months of work into it and I watched it and it was a wild ride. Oh, that's really interesting. I'll have to give it a watch maybe once I finish Next Generation. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure to bring that up. And I will probably be mentioning it here with our uh, first episode that we cover. But uh, why don't we go ahead and get into that? Yeah, today we're talking about Angel 1. It's the 14th episode of the first season. It originally aired on the 25th of January, 1988. It was written by Patrick Berry, directed by Michael Rhodes. While Riker leads an away team to a female-dominated planet, a mysterious virus spreads among the Enterprise crew. So I looked away for two seconds and could not figure out. I was writing notes about something else, came back, and there was a virus on the Enterprise. Do they ever explain where it came from and I just missed it? Or what happened there? I think there was like an, an offhand reference to like some away team that had just come back from some other planet. Oh, okay. That's what I missed. <laughs> yeah, it was what it really came from was the writer's room going, oh, we have to uh, fill a B plot here. Right. That's what it felt like for sure. <laughs> and it was like really, really poorly written. The Well, the episode in general, I want to say, but especially the virus stuff, because at the beginning, Beverly rules out person to person contact, but then to determines it's airborne which wouldn't that would be person to person wouldn't it yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah at first i thought it came from the holodeck i thought that was gonna be the plot because that's what i thought it was gonna be too because wesley be like- and his friend come out with their sparkle suits and they like smell like klingon homeworld and then all of a sudden people are getting sick so i thought wow is the holodeck making everyone sick <laughs> that would be an interesting holodeck malfunction episode that i don't think they've ever done that would have been oh. a better episode but to, to go back to what you said i don't think the episode's very well written it was trying something but it was way too heavy-handed and it wasn't well balanced for what it was trying to do i thought the writing was just kind of meh in the whole thing i mentioned jesse gender's uh video sex and star trek and uh mm-hmm. there's like one specific specific incident in the writer's room 
that she brought up, and it was about this episode. Oh, interesting. It was getting more into Gene's weird sexism later in his life. He went through a pretty ugly divorce in like the the 60s and 70s which kind of like tainted how he would interact with women going forward Mm. um and he was talking about how like in this episode he was like you know we want to show that you know women are as capable uh, of leading as as the men but i don't want anyone to imply that the society would be better if women were running it and then he goes into like this massive like rant about how how they're all c words who who are you know (laughs) it was just like everyone in the writer's room was just like uh what and then like he just looks out the window and goes okay so on page eight wow okay that kind of explains the tone of the episode because it was seemed like oh we're doing the star trek egalitarian thing here just like the betazoids here's a planet that's ruled by women you know like i was all along for the ride but it was such a weird bumpy strange ride (laughs) i I also thought it was uh, interesting how, like, they didn't really try to make the women more buff. Like, I would have I would have pictured, like, if they wanted to have... Because all the men that they cast on, on Angel 1, they, they cast, like, shorter... Very uh, small um, men, yeah. They, they cast twinks. And, yeah. <laughs> um, but all the women just looked like normal 80s women. I would have thought they would have gone for, like... Like, more- almost two 80s, right? Because, like, they kind of tried to make everybody look a little sci-fi, but the Beata, she looked... Just like she stepped out of an 80s fashion magazine, like her haircut, her clothes or everything. Yeah, I would have expected to see more butch women. Oh, that's true, too. Yeah. And and lesbian women, too. On a planet where there's matriarchal society, there's going to be more lesbians. The fact they were all into dudes made me do a double take as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, I agree with that. I expected the women to be a little bit more, not necessarily Amazonian, but like if this is a society that's evolved over thousands and thousands and thousands of years to be matriarchal, they would be the buffer bigger ones ones not just the men would be like you know smaller <laughs> it didn't really seem to work for me i don't know it was a weird episode the the costumes that uh, the men wore on on the planet <laughs> which is the real point of the episode the real point of the episode is getting Riker into that outfit <laughs> uh-huh um <laughs> And I can tell you that uh, Bill Theus, who was uh, the uh, one of the costume designers for uh, the original series and for the first season of Star Trek, um, and this is another thing that I learned from Jesse Gender Sex and Star Trek video, uh, apparently every time he was given like a, a buxom woman to work on, he would just be like, Ugh, I'm so bored. But anytime he got <laughs> to put a man in something sexy, he was all for it. Interesting. And- uh, he, and he was he was a gay man, so you know um, mm-hmm. uh, he uh, he he got to have fun with this one. I kind of thought it was weird that Tasha and Deanna would be laughing at Riker wearing uh, skimpy outfits when, like, on the Enterprise, uh, uh, you've got men wearing miniskirts. Yeah, that's true. I, I enjoyed his willingness and readiness to put on the ceremonial outfit or whatever, though. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but also, like, Tasha, especially, like, I'm sorry, Tasha, I, I saw that under boob that you were sporting a couple episodes back. <laughs> like, that, that, that was the same costume designer. You don't really have room to be laughing here. No, but one nipple exposed is a look. It really oh, is. Oh, for sure. And you know, um, I, I you know I like a little bit of hair on the chest. That that it's a. It was a very stark contrast to the dude that was like Beata. I think that's how they said it. Mm-hmm. Um, that was her little consort or whatever. He was very like Trent. Yeah, he was very like uh, smooth or whatever. So it was an interesting contrast. Mm-hmm. Well, I, 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 I am sure that uh, that actor waxes. Oh, probably. Um, how about uh, the look on 
Deanna's face. I think when he comes out of the room, she has this look. I don't know. I can't even describe it. It was like half shock, half embarrassment. I don't know. I thought it was funny. I don't know. It, it felt like a very 80s reaction to it rather than a 24th century reaction that's to true. it. They, they all seemed a little flustered and like, oh, well, that's silly that the men have to wear the sexy outfits. I'm like, no, they, they should be like, They've oh, been, I like it. They know other planets, too. Like, there are yeah. other matriarchal planets out there, so it's a little weird, but I don't know. Um I- I did appreciate that it gave uh, Deanna and Tasha the uh, they basically were running point on the away mission because it's a matriarchal society. So obviously they're going to respect the women more, but it gives them more to do because usually they're, you know, uh, the ones standing around doing not much. Yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking as I was watching Jonathan Frakes get into that outfit and come back out. That reminded me of that story from Doctor Who where they said, if you put Matt Smith in a fez, he's never going to take it off. They said, you can't put Matt in a fez. He'll never take it off. And it's true. The dude wears a fez like so many times throughout the rest of the show. And I kept thinking, I wonder how Jonathan Frakes felt about this outfit. He seems so gleeful to put it on. You know, he gets that little sparkle in his eye. <laughs> he was actually a little uncomfortable with it. Um, was he? But he did a it- good job of not showing it. Well, actually, you could see that it was maybe a little bit where he was, like, not fully comfortable in his own skin wearing it, but, like, he was obviously like, no, but I'm going to be wearing it. It was like he was just something he was pushing through. Yeah. Um. It. Yeah, I don't know. I, I liked it. I, I, thought, I thought he did a good job wearing I it. I thought and he of did, course, too. And, of course, he did a better job getting out of it almost immediately. <laughs> so, he wore his little earring thing. On mm-hmm. the wrong ear, or on the other ear than the other guy did. And I wondered what that was about, because it was very clearly on the other ear for the main dude. But when he put it on, he put it on the other ear for himself. Oh, I, I didn't notice that. It may just be, uh, I don't know what uh, what different ears signify. I mean, obviously... I just thought it was interesting that I noticed. Wait, which ear did he have it on? Um, I'm thinking, so it would. Be, I think it would have been his left ear. Okay, I'm trying to remember, because back in like the 80s and 90s, gay men would wear their earring in one ear to signify that they were gay, uh, and I don't remember which one it was. Me either. Yeah, I remember that. And I'm <laughs> wondering if it, they specifically... I don't even know if it was ever true, though. I know it was, like, an urban myth, but was it a well, no, it was, thing? It wasn't, it wasn't a real thing in the culture. It just I just don't remember, and it's not really a thing now, because now you just say, I'm gay. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, that ugly glass thing sure was ugly that he gave her as a present i i I didn't understand that whole scene because he comes in with this weird glowing glass ugly thing and just just it it really was just plot device to get that guy in there so he could be in there and the woman could be like i get to screw whoever i want to screw you know when data asks what an aphrodisiac is oh he was so excited to explain what it was Riker was (laughs) but my question is, how can he claim he's fully functional if he doesn't know what an aphrodisiac is? It's a very simple concept that he would know from, like, the dictionary or the encyclopedia that would have been uploaded to his brain, right? Yeah. That that was the same thing I thought. I thought that was weird. They wanted to give Riker an opportunity to explain what an aphrodisiac was, but in doing so, they kind of undermined Data's, like, knowledge base. <laughs> Oh, so back to the ship with uh, um, everybody getting sick. When uh, Picard makes uh, uh, puts Jordy in command when he has to go to, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, uh-huh. There's one thing I noticed, uh, and it's something that is almost always done in the show, 
whenever somebody has to leave their post on, on on the bridge, there's always somebody like in the wings who just steps right in without being told to to go and fill it. But you never see like in like wide shots of the ship uh, of the bridge, like any standby officers. They just like appear out of nowhere to do it. Right. And I wonder what like the actual mechanism of that is, because nobody ever has to say, oh, hey, I need somebody to replace this thing. It's just always wordlessly. Here's an extra. They step right in to (laughs) to fill the thing. And um, I mean, I, I like that they make sure that that gets done. But it's also like, do they just not want to have a, a line to throw in for for that? And it just shows that the the enterprise is uh, um, so efficiently run; they don't even need to uh, issue commands to make sure that uh, a post is staffed. Are you talking about when he is going to go down to engineering to fix something, and Worf says, "Oh, but you have other duties or whatever. You should send someone else to do it." Is that what you're talking about? No, I'm talking specifically about when Jordy stands up from the helm to go sit in the captain's chair. Somebody immediately goes in and sits down at the helm. Oh, I didn't even notice that. I guess that's why I wasn't tracking what you were talking about. So, yeah, I mean, because somebody has to pilot the ship, right? Right. Interesting. Yeah, I guess they just kind of know if this person shifts up in command, I go into his spot or whatever. There must be like predetermined, like, fill in the ranks if somebody moves. Mm-hmm. And by the end, was was Beverly in charge of the whole ship? Because at one point she answered. They called and she said, this is Crusher or whatever. So, like, did the chain of command get so far down that Beverly was in charge of the ship? Oh, uh, um, the CMO is typically outside the chain of command. Um, I'm She can, you know, take command in a pinch. There, there's um, a couple episodes uh, later in, in, in the show where she actually does take command of the ship. Um, but... Or, or like she'll she'll work like the night shift or something um, mm. uh, on bridge duty. Interesting. But typically, typically, you know, CMO's duties are, are are very different. I mean, she does have a rank. She's she has the rank of commander, but it's never brought up because she's a doctor. So that's you know that that's first and foremost what she does on the what ship. What she's there for, yeah. Um, how about the holding the communicator in his hand? I thought that was weird. Why? I mean, maybe it was against their culture to put it on the male outfit or something, but he was just holding his communicator in his hand. I thought that was weird, too. I mean, obviously, they normally put it over, you know, the the, the left side of their chest, but that was exposed, so he couldn't put it there. But I thought, well, why not just put it on the right side of the chest? Yeah, I had that thought, too. And so I thought it was a little weird, but... I I expect it was probably a a matter of it didn't look as good on the outfit if they had pinned the communicator on, so they just decided, oh, just hold it in your hand. Oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. That's probably what they decided. Um, Jordy's Make It So was adorable. (laughs) It was so (laughs) cute. (laughs) I loved it. Um, Oh, Picard was the whiniest man with a cold. I know it's kind of a stereotypical men are very whiny with their colds, but man, did they make him really whiny. Yeah, what what is that meme? Women think that that, uh, childbirth is the most pain you'll ever experience, but they have never met a man with a cold. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so I didn't, I thought that was cute that they were kind of playing that up. And then, um, as you know, I watch things with subtitles and my favorite subtitle of the whole episode was Klingon sneeze. sneeze. (laughs) I had that written down too. (laughs) Klingon sneeze. It made me laugh. Um, (laughs) 
But all in all, I thought the episode was weird. I thought the premise was strange. I thought, how are they married? And she doesn't even realize it till that point with that her like second command is married to the revolutionary. I thought it was stupid that he was willing to die for it when they could just take them off the planet. Like there was just like the whole episode just kind of felt like it was spinning its gears and not getting anywhere. Well, I think they were trying to, I mean, they, they weren't successful at it, but they were trying to like portray like an apartheid society and how the the guy would rather die because he was basically like um a civil rights activist at this point so i could understand why he wouldn't want to flee right uh, because he could probably see you know his death as as uh being a martyr but i don't know i feel like there was probably a better script somewhere that got lost in the writer's room for this and yeah. I, I think trying to sex it up a little much cheap in the episode, maybe. I, I usually don't say that about Star Trek, because I like sex in Star Trek, but I don't know. I don't think it worked as well in this one. I don't I don't know, because they were trying to show her as being like strong, independent woman. They can sleep with whoever she wants, but it just it didn't feel it didn't feel good. I don't know. Not I, I didn't enjoy the episode. <laughs> I guess I made that clear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, the second episode we're going to talk about today is 11001001. It is the 15th episode of the first season. It aired on the 1st of February, 1988, and it was written by Maurice Hurley and Robert Lewin and directed by Paul Lynch. While a group of technologically advanced aliens board the Enterprise to update the ship's computer systems, Riker discovers just how real a holodeck character can be. (laughs) Um, I loved this episode. There's a lot of things I loved about this episode but my first complaint is that 11001001 means nothing in binary (laughs) i looked it up because i wanted to know i thought maybe it would mean like minuet or something like that it means nothing it doesn't mean anything that's silly well it's the name it's the names of the four binars because the binars are named one one zero zero one zero and zero one that's about it that's what it means oh it's their names okay i thought it would mean a word so that's why i was thrown off but i was so frustrated i was like oh that's gonna mean something and then i was like it doesn't mean anything <laughs> well to get a word you'd need a much longer uh episode title that that's I don't think true because that would be at most one letter so are these the basis for the guys from Galaxy Quest? Um, the, the the main guys in Galaxy Quest, the guys who built the ship. Yeah, like the guys who come to get Tim Allen and Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> you know, I, I actually can kind of see where, where where you're going with from that. Uh, the, they kind of had a similar walk, didn't they? And the way that they talked and the way that they moved together and stuff. I don't know. Something about it really reminded me. I haven't seen Galaxy Quest in a while. I think you might be onto something there. That's uh. I think they I think so too when I was watching it it felt really like Galaxy Quest. I I did like how they would always finish each other's sentences when they're speaking English yeah, and then I thought that was cute. <laughs> when they're speaking their own language like I I love how the actors just like open their mouth in like an O shape and <laughs> they just dub in the, the sounds. <laughs> So I think this weekend when I relax, I'm going to treat myself like a starship captain. I'm uh-huh. going to put my feet up. I'm going to have a personal relaxation light. And I'm going to lose myself in pages of a novel. <laughs> I had to rewind it. I was so excited by this list of treat yourself that um, John Luke was going to do. I wanted to get the list right because I was like, that sounds amazing. I want to do that. That That is kind of how he how he winds down. He's usually uh, um, putting his feet up, reading a book, and drinking Earl Grey. Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, that's a cute visual. Um, there was more acrylic blocks as computers. Of course. If you didn't. 
There always is. What did you think of Data painting? This is actually the first uh, instance of Data painting, but Data is a painter through the rest of the show. Um, oh, is he? Interesting. Yeah, it's something he keeps up. It's actually, uh, I, I even think one of his paintings is like a relevant plot point in Star Trek Picard. Which you know takes oh. place thirty years later. So this is the origin of the painting, though. Yeah, this is the first time we've seen him paint. I don't think we've seen him paint before. Yeah, it's the first time we've seen him paint, and I did like the joke: a blind man teaching an android how to paint. That was yeah, that, <laughs> that was cute. I liked the excuse of an or not or the explanation of an attempt at pure creativity. <laughs> I thought that was uh-huh. funny. Well, yeah, because his painting was very abstract. Um, it was. He does a lot of abstract art, but he also does a lot of you know he he experiments with the with the different uh art styles and uh yeah it's a it's a good outlet for his creativity which i was thinking about like as a computer it's but he's not a computer right because he's an artificial intelligence so he would have creativity as an artificial intelligence right or is that a purely human thing well he he is a computer but i mean humans are basically computers right like i mean our 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 brains are like just very advanced processing units. They're just not built with silicon. They're built with with carbon. But can an android have original thought? Well, yeah, that's a that's a, a good uh, philosophical question. I would say <laughs> uh, sufficiently advanced. Yes, of course. Data is a computer, but he is also a person. He is, yeah. I mean, and that's I started thinking about that creativity thing, and it kind of like was in the back of my head the whole time because I was like. As as you, as my friend, know, I'm never usually on the side of the robots. <laughs> usually when it comes down to they want me to care about a robot and something, it's really hard for me to care about a robot. It's like with Westworld, for example. It took me a lot to get on the robot side, like the first uh-huh. whole season and a half, I think. It took me to get... Like, where I was finally like, screw the humans, pro-robots, let's go. (laughs) Um, Because to me, there are things that are created by humans, and every thought that they have and every feeling that they have is programmed by a human. And so, because of that, they can never be truly, you know, an independent, like, thought. So, I'm not usually, or have independent thoughts. So, I'm not usually on the robot side of of robot apocalypse type things. how, How much do you think humans have independent thought? Um, our personalities like like most of most of society is just built on you know uh other people and the way that we're conditioned i mean you know uh uh you know in in the nature versus nurture argument i tend to to side a lot more on the nurture uh yeah you can say that uh an android doesn't have original thought because he was just programmed uh with what he was but i mean i was raised by my parents with uh certain you know ideals and and, and uh uncertain beliefs um, we all were. Mm-hmm. So how's that different? I guess that's true. And we, we can't really know because unless we're raised in a room without any sort of outside influence, we wouldn't know if our thoughts are original mm-hmm. or if they're just part of our subconscious that we gleaned as we're walking through the world. You know, we're going to get deeper into this in a season two episode called The Measure of a Man, uh, which mm. is pretty much all about this. So I, I, oh, I will good. be looking forward to that conversation with you. But yeah, I'm looking on. forward to that too. Okay, so here's my biggest problem with this whole episode. Okay, why would a man from the 24th century? It's 24th century, right? I think yep. that's what I looked up. Why would he like jazz from 1958? I, it would be the equivalent of me liking music from 1588 
1988. And it doesn't make any sense that they would. And then Picard comes in. He's like, hmm, this is a place I would have picked for myself, too. And I'm like, why? There's been 400 years of music to have happened between 1958 and the time that they are on the Enterprise. It's it's kind of this big glaring plot hole of, of the Enterprise's holodeck episodes at this point is that everything is set in the 20th century and everything that's important to them is from the near past of 1988, not the 24th century. <laughs> it is um, a limitation of uh, how fiction is written that uh, when you're when you're writing for the far future, you're still writing a show that's going to be seen by people in the present. So we've had the noir episode. Now we've had a jazz episode. We've had all these episodes, and you can definitely see what age range they think is watching their show. But mm-hmm. as Riker is a much younger man than Picard, I would assume he would be into things that are not the same, especially when he has 400 more years of stuff to choose from. It just, it seemed so lazy. Does that make sense? Yeah, I would, um, although I wouldn't say that, uh, liking jazz is something that would be gone in the 24th century. I mean, um, uh, in uh, Deep Space Nine, Benjamin Sisko's from New Orleans, and jazz is still alive and well there. And, um, it just seems a little more weird that he would specifically pick like 1958 versus yeah. say like <laughs> jazz from like uh 2349 or something. Right. Um, like a specific time. It was the 1958 that really threw me off. That's what made, had me getting on my phone while the episode was going and trying to figure out like what the equivalency would be. It'd be like Jonathan Frakes in 1988 being super into music from 1588, which no uh-huh. one listens to for funsies. Well, you like, <laughs> and, and, you know, um, I like classical music, but, like, if I had a holodeck, I don't think I would go to a setting where, like, I was listening to classical music and, like, uh, you know, the uh, 17th century um, Austria or anything like that. I don't think I'd do that. I My husband uh, would. He, heard, <laughs> he, he was watching me watch this episode, and he really was like, well, you know, I enjoy that kind of music, right? And I was like, yeah, I get that, but it's so weird to be so specific to 1958. Like, that's what was bothering me about it. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, jazz history and jazz culture would have evolved, and he probably, I mean, he would, There's there's always going to be some uh, nostalgia in jazz jazz for the past a, a lot of you know uh jazz staples um are from like you know the uh the early days of jazz you know yeah. from the 30s to the 50s uh so i i can understand somebody in the 80s wanting to set it back then but, but yes. not someone 400 and something years later. But that, that's, sure. I mean, it's its just more of like a, and I know that it kind of, you know what the holodeck re- episodes remind me of are the historical traveling in time episodes of Doctor Who where they're trying to like teach us what Shakespeare was like. Sure. And so it feels like that, that they're trying to do those kinds of episodes, you know, like, oh, here's Charles Dickens, you know. And so it feels like that's what they're trying to do, which is fine or whatever. I just feel like there's this 400 year gap of culture, like there was some giant war where culture just stopped. You know, Oh, you mean like World War Three, where 600 million people died in a nuclear holocaust? Is that a thing? (laughs) In in Star Wars or Star Star Trek? Trek. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
Oh, see? Yeah. So apparently there was a thing. I mean, because like in Fallout, the reason that everything is still set in like the 50s is because of the nuclear race, right? They were racing to build nukes. And so they didn't like advance the culture or clothes or cars or anything because they were just trying to protect themselves in the Cold War. And so that's like the whole reasoning for behind why everything looks like it's from the 50s. And so I was trying to figure out if there was some reason that most of the culture that they reference in Next Generation happens to be from the near past of the time that the show was being recorded Mm -hmm. a lot of the jazz thing was probably just so that Riker could play the trombone because clearly he plays the trombone (laughs) it seemed to be a setup so he could be like oh haha I play the the bone yes he does um and he plays the trombone uh uh throughout the series um does he call it the bone because I'm still I'm still a little bit disturbed by that (laughs) No, he. I don't think he calls it the bone after that. I think he was just uh, and a bone for me. <laughs> trying trying to get into the slang of the time, maybe. Yeah. Um. Okay. So I think I killed the whole Riker liking jazz thing long enough. <laughs> let's talk about Minuet. Yeah. Let's talk about her. I don't know. I didn't feel like she was appropriately more intuitive of a holodeck character than we had seen in like the big goodbye so i felt like we were supposed to just suspend our disbelief and it was different in person to picard and Riker. uh-huh because no there wasn't that big of a difference like when the lady turns at the very end and it's not minuet it's uh-huh. a different lady that looks like minuet she looked a little more dead in the eyes or whatever that was really the only difference is that she didn't quite have that same sparkle in her eye that minuet did Mm-hmm. And um, so for me, I felt like <sighs> I couldn't tell the difference. Like, So I felt like we were supposed to just suspend our disbelief and trust Riker and Picard that she was much different. Yeah. Because there was no way to physically show that. Right. Right. Now, um, Minuet does leave a lasting impression on Riker. Remember her character because it's going to be relevant uh, in the future. Good to know. I thought the actress looked familiar, so I had to look her up. Um, She was on Spencer for Hire, and I'm thinking that's where I remember her from. My mom used to watch that show, and I'd watch it with her, and I'd be like eight or nine when she was on Spencer Fire, but she was also on Law and Order for like 15 years or something uh-huh. <laughs> as like a secondary doctor. But the second she came on screen, I was like, oh, I know that actress from somewhere, but it didn't turn out to be anything major, just a couple places like that. But that's interesting that she makes a lasting impression because he really did seem taken with her in a way that we haven't really seen Riker taken with anybody. Other than Deanna. Other than Deanna. Can we talk about how Riker left Wesley in charge of the ship? <laughs> yeah, I guess I mean, but he did, didn't he? I didn't really think about that, but yeah, he did. I mean, they're in space docks. It's not like going anywhere. Uh, Most of the crew is off like doing shore leave things, but like it just felt like I'm like, really? That's who you're leaving in charge? There's no other like actual commissioned (laughs) officers. You're just given given it to the kid. Yeah. Hey, kid, go, go, go watch this, you know. A trillion dollar ship. Uh, uh, <laughs> make make sure those little aliens don't do anything with our trillion dollar ship. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna just go away now. You're in charge, kid. <laughs> You've proven yourself. I feel like you're ready. <laughs> Look, kid. Last time we didn't listen to you, and you almost got killed by an android. So uh, here's four computer beings. We're gonna let you keep an eye on them. <laughs> You've earned beings. it. Um. Okay. So there was a point where they're trying to, like, figure out where Riker and Picard are, and uh, Yar is on 
the space station with fake Picard, as I was kept calling him in my head. I don't know what his name was, but he was wearing the same red outfit and had the same haircut and talked in a weirdly American accent. <laughs> but uh-huh. I was like, he like grabs her arm. Do you, did you see it? Do you know what I'm talking about? To like force her to look at what he wants her to look at. And I thought, man, that actor overstepped his bounds because it wasn't, <laughs> it was not the direction. I don't think of like grab Tasha and flip her around. He's, he's like, his, he's mildly saying, look, there they are or something like that. But he's got this like death grip on her arm. And I was like, take your hands off of Lieutenant Tasha Yar right now. Fake Picard. <laughs> like I was so mad about about it and i don't know why he was grabbing her like that but i don't think it was meant to be a part of the show of the like writing of the show uh-huh. i think he was probably just grabbing her in like kind of a way that men do touch women and it uh-huh. bothered me so much because i think in reality if a man had grabbed tasha that way she would have fucking flipped him on his back <laughs> and taken him out like i was that's why i thought it was the the actor and not the writing in the script because it just right. it really bothered me um something about that actor was just off like he didn't feel right in that role he didn't have very many um lines but i didn't think i think the fact that he looked just like picard is really not a good thing for his character but it's because i was constantly comparing him to picard but he was kind of this nothing character but he was there and i had to pay attention to him you know what i mean yeah um i actually totally missed that i i I vaguely recall him like turning her around but i didn't pay attention to how how hard he grabbed grabbed her or anything because then the whole time they're like looking he's still got his arm around her his hand around her arm it really oh. bothered me. Yeah, that's um, Yeah. So do you know what Riker's middle name is? Because they said it was, I laughed a little bit when it was William T. Riker, or it was Riker William T. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's Thomas. We actually talked about that in uh, um, the, the Haven episode. Did we? Okay, because I knew yeah. it sounded familiar. I was like, oh man, I don't think it's Tiberius as badly as I want it to be Tiberius. <laughs> yeah, no, it's actually not established yet that it's Thomas. Right now it is just an initial um they don't say what it is until season six okay so we're gonna bleed back into the other episode a little bit uh angel one and um because i i forgot about a question that i had but it's actually relevant to this episode as well um how does the teleporter that's not what it's called transporter, transporter how does the transporter work so they're standing in a room and they go four to beam up how does the transporter know? I used to, as a kid, thought it was their communicators, but they often bring people that don't have communicators with them. So how do they work? Uh, very well, thank you. <laughs> I, I, Yeah, I, it, it, that's how often bugged me. Because I'm specifically thinking about during Angel One, they were going to try to beam up everybody that was like one of the revolutionaries or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And then they're trying to evacuate the enterprise in this one and some people are leaving through the gangplank type thing and some people are getting on the transporter which they only have filled up there's like those six dots right right and they would have the two in the back didn't have people on them during an evacuation what kind of safety is that where's osha (laughs) like because why aren't they it's it's kind of like the titanic not filling their um lifeboats full of people and only putting eight people in a lifeboat that holds 50 like why were they only teleporting out four like of the dots at a time i assume those dots were things you could teleport away from yeah i i have to assume the reason that they only did four is because like the where the camera was like the people behind would have been partially occluded 
And mm. if they fade out the people in front, you should, in theory, see them behind them. But in order to do that, you'd have to film oh, a, a whole additional the, plate the to do that. So it was probably yeah. just just a matter of, uh, we don't want to do that, so we'll just have four people so that it's a cheaper effect. I see. That would make more sense. Yeah. But that whole, like, four to beam up. Four to, at one point, I think in Angel 1, Riker was going to beam 14 people up. How does the transporter know? Do they have to be touching them? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, obviously, it's the transporter. Porter chief who you know picks the people to lock on and usually like when they go you know x number to beam up they will like step aside from other people to go find a, a spot away from everyone else and so mm-hmm. i think usually it's just okay there's 14 people in that area so those must be the 14 people i get but sometimes it's like you're standing you're like one to beam up but it's like one person just in a crowd right now with starfleet people it makes sense they could use the communicator right like if i'm picard and i'm like yeah you know jordy beam me up he's gonna be like there's your kid your your yeah tra- your communicator i'll just transport you up here but when they bring up all the random like civilians that's where it gets right. confusing yeah um i don't know uh and but i also suspect that if they went into the minutiae of like how how you would actually uh, arrange that kind of a transport it would bog down the episode right that makes sense. So I think it's it's probably just um, eco- economics of storytelling. What if they had auto-destructed the Enterprise? This is the other thing I was thinking about, because, like, it's early on in the show. If I remember right, don't they wreck the Enterprise in Generations? Is that yes. the one where they wreck it? Okay. Yeah. So do they wreck the Enterprise on many other equations? I was thinking as it got down to two minutes to auto-destruct, how funny it would be if on, like, the 14th episode, <laughs> it just blew up the Enterprise. <laughs> um uh- so I, I will say that uh, the auto destruct has been invoked multiple times, um, and uh, there also—I don't know if like there was ever a time where the auto destruct actually blew up the Enterprise and then like time travel fixed it. But I do know there are times where the Enterprise blows up and then time travel fixes it. But I don't remember if that was auto destruct. Mm, okay, so obviously Minuet was like programmed by the Binars, right? And yeah. um. So how come they didn't hear the red alert? Did they did they program it not to go off? They must have done something to the holodeck because especially they did like an all call to the ship. They tried to get a hold of of Picard and Riker and the holodeck did not uh go off and I can't imagine if you did an all call emergency that, you know, somebody in the holodeck would be exempt from that. Yeah. And the whole point was they wanted Riker to be there to save them. Right? Like, that was the whole point. And why did they choose Riker over Picard? Because obviously they wrote Minuet to trap Riker there, but they also, as a side note, got Picard because, once again, somebody just sauntered into somebody else's holodeck experience, (laughs) (laughs) which is just the weirdest thing to me. But, like, he just saunters in and sits down and admires Minuet, you know? Yeah. I would think especially if I were on the Enterprise, and I know Riker... Of anybody to just saunter in on their holodeck experience, I would not walk in on a Riker holodeck because you don't know at what point uh, in in the conquest he's at. Right. (laughs) And I'm assuming, I'm assuming that they can have sex on the holodeck, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) They have to be able to, right? There is uh, a um, a frequent uh, joke in the uh, the Star Trek subreddit that I think actually at one point ended up being a banned question which was uh uh who um 
who did they hire as uh, uh, to be the jizz mop for for the uh, holodeck once they turn everything <laughs> off? I assume it's like a Taco Bell bathroom where there's like a drain in the bottom of the floor and they can just spray the whole thing down. <laughs> now that you bring it up, that's how I imagine it. Because <laughs> who wants that job? I guess that's what acting ensigns are for, right? <laughs> Wesley, get over here. <laughs> I also think it probably just dematerializes because um, there was like uh, in in the Big Goodbye, there was a risk where they're like, if we shut it off now, it could uh, shut off everything in there. I, I like uh, implying that with the safety protocols off, the holodeck couldn't differentiate what w- which matter was uh, generated by the holodeck and which matter was supposed to be there. So oh. like, because it's actual matter. In the right. holodeck, yeah. Right. Because it's, like, all replicated or whatever. Like, it's yeah. a giant uh, replicator. Yeah, I mean, s- some of the stuff is just force fields and photons, but some stuff is uh, actually replicated. And, you know, uh, the the holodeck would have to keep track of what is replicated versus what came in there to, to make sure that it, you know, doesn't kill you when you turn it off. But Right. And it's interesting that... I thought that once I realized the binars had trapped them there, that they would be trapped inside the holodeck. But as soon as John Luke said exit, it appeared and they were able to leave. Well, right, because they didn't want to trap them there. They just wanted to distract them so that they'd still be on the ship once they had hijacked it. They they wanted, because again, they wanted to make sure that if they went unconscious like they did, that there'd be somebody there to uh, to finish the uh, um, the rescue mission. How much trouble do you think they're really going to be in with the Federation? It doesn't seem like a lot. They did what they had to do, right? Right. And, you know, um, I, and I appreciate that, you know, it's their binary thinking the that if they, uh, <laughs> the reason they didn't ask is because the, there was a risk that they would have said no, and uh, then their their species would would be extinct. So I can appreciate their their uh, their mode of thinking there. Um, For sure, I, yeah. I, there are a lot of times where the Enterprise is hijacked, or like a species does something against, uh, you know, the um, the Starfleet crew's will. Uh, but it uh, ends up being something that they do because, like, it, it would save them, and like, it just doesn't occur to them that the the, uh, the Federation would have helped them. Um, and so, and it's usually in that that kind of a situation, Picard is very lenient on them. It's like, look, you could have asked us for help, and we would have gladly helped you. That's right. what we do. Uh, so we're gonna we'll 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 ease up on you on this this time because it was uh, it was for a good cause. Yeah, and even if they go to jail for the rest of their lives, they save their whole planet, right? Like I don't, I mean, I think they took that risk into consideration. Like even if they were going to be punished for it, at least they would save their planet on the on the way. Mm-hmm. One thing that uh, that I noticed, and it was just a, a little uh, tiny thing um, uh, at the beginning of the episode when. Um, uh, Worf and Yar are in their uh, Parisi Squares team uniforms. That mm-hmm. little, um, they're off to go play some sport. They never explain what Parisi Squares is, but it is something that is referenced a lot in the show. Oh, really? <laughs> I thought that was just some word they made up, and we'd never hear it again. <laughs> no, it, no, they'll, they'll reference it again. We ju- we never actually see a match of it being played, but it's referenced when uh, Riker uh, is, uh, meets them in the hallway and wishes them good luck. He reaches out his hand and he briefly gives the Vulcan salute. Does he? I didn't notice. Yeah, I had to. I was like, "Wait, did he do that?" And I went back and I fr- uh, freeze framed it, and there it was. He did a little Vulcan salute. Is that sport a Vulcan sport, baby? I don't know. I don't think it is. Uh, it could be. They never. I'd need to look it up on uh, on Memory Alpha to be sure. But uh, no, I think it was just you know uh, 
maybe it was just something uh, Riker picked up at one point, or maybe it's just something that uh, everyone has adopted because it's a Star Trek thing now. Yeah, that is interesting. That's a cute little thing. I thought it was interesting that everybody was off to do things and Riker was wandering the halls of the Enterprise, like, all lonely by himself. <laughs> like, and it now looking back on it, knowing that the Binars were trying to get him alone on the ship to save their planet, I wonder if they helped arrange all the stuff that the people were interested in. Like, Beverly had that person she was really excited to go share her theories with, and they were really excited to go... Sp- play that game and like everybody was clearing off the enterprise and i wonder if the binars had anything to do with that since they were trying to get the enterprise cleared out so that they could get help well i don't think they uh had anything to do with the people who had things to do because like anytime you go to space dock you're looking for shore leave so people yeah. are, are going to be looking for things and and i mean they had to fake an emergency so that the rest of the ship would be evacuated because a lot of people still were on the ship. I was surprised how many people were still on the ship when they don't get to go on shore leave very often. <laughs> I was surprised how many people were still in there, like not not people running the ship, but there was a lot of civilians. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was weird. Like, Who hangs out at home when you're finally off of somewhere where you can get off the ship? You know? <laughs> Particularly for a star base that large, like it's large enough that the Enterprise can be completely engulfed by it. Like, right. There's got to be a lot to do there. A ton to do. And like, get out, stretch your legs, don't be stuck on the Enterprise. <laughs> you yeah. Know? You're going to burn out. <laughs> Take a vacation. Mm-hmm. So thanks for joining us today. I'm Ari. And I'm Gayfesh. And until next time, live long and prosper. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter at RestBothWorlds. Join our Patreon at patreon.com slash RestBothWorlds for bonus content and hear your name at the end of each episode.